going to take a reading, the reading from the first book of Samuel, and uh, I'm, I've been trusted with the 11th chapter, first book of Samuel, and chapter 11. Um, I don't like long reading, so, but this has got 15 verses. I think for the sake of continuity here, I think I need to read them all. Beginning at verse 1. Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged, besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to him, Make a treaty with us and we will be subject to you. But Nahash the Ammonite replied, I will make a treaty with you only on the condition that I gouge out the right eye of every one of you and so bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days. Uh, so we can send messengers throughout Israel. If no one comes to rescue us, we will surrender to you. When the messengers came to, to Gibeah of Saul and reported these terms to the people, they all wept aloud. And just then Saul was returning from the fields behind his oxen and he asked, What is wrong with everyone? Why are they weeping? Then they repeated to him what the men of Jabesh had said. When Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him, and he burned with anger. He took a pair of oxen, cut them into pieces, and sent the pieces by messengers throughout Israel, proclaiming, This is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. Then the terror of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out together as one. And when Saul mustered them at Bezek, the men of Israel numbered 300,000 and those of Judah 30,000. And they told the messengers who had come, Say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, By the time the sun is hot tomorrow, you will be rescued. When the messengers went and reported this to the men of Jabesh, they were elated. And they said to the Ammonites, Tomorrow we will surrender to you, and you can do to us whatever you like. The next day, Saul separated his men into three divisions during the last watch of the night. And they broke into the camp of the Ammonites and slaughtered them until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. The people then said to Samuel, Who was it that asked, Shall Saul reign over us? Turn these men over to us so that we may, we may put them to death. But Saul said, no one will be put to death today, for this day the Lord has rescued Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingship. So all the people went to Gilgal and made Saul king in the presence of the Lord. There they sacrificed fellowship offerings before the Lord, and Saul and all the Israelites held a great celebration. Amen. Trust the Lord to give us insight uh, into his uh, word there. So where are we? Saul has been, uh, shall we say, to summarize it, appointed and anointed, but he hasn't actually been crowned as king yet. In fact, it's, it's not the kind of thing you'd imagine Prince Charles ever having done. He seems not to have been in any hurry to take on the mantle of king uh, in Israel. He just went back to the farm and started to look after his oxen just uh, as he was before and as everybody else uh, did in his day. Uh, and then suddenly the whole thing begins to come alive. What do you do with 
1 Samuel chapter 11, you know, how many different roads can you go down to, to, to gain godly wisdom from this, this passage? Um, I, I sat and I, I was almost going to say tore my hair out, but I haven't got any. So uh, trying to figure out which direction will I go with this? Uh, and finally, very late in the day, uh, I came to the conclusion how we'll, we'll deal with this. There are three things. There are far more than three uh, things we can learn from this uh, passage. But here are three of them. And the first one is this, and they give us lessons for our Christian lives today, and they give us lessons uh, for the life of the church today. I've called the first one, Rejecting the Covenant. Now, on the, the, uh, you probably can't see this. It's a bit pointless, uh, really. You, you can't really get a map that, that, that shows everything uh, at, this, at this, and everybody able to read it. But if you're looking at the screen, um, the right-hand side of it where there is a map, uh, what you see is the Middle East, and you see the Mediterranean on the left. Over to the extreme right, about halfway up, is the country of Ammon. There are the bad guys uh, who are going to attack uh, Israel. Uh, to the left of Ammon, there's a dotted line there. You see Gilead, and Gilead was the place where they were going to invade. Down, uh, just above uh, the, the Dead Sea there, you'll see Gilgal. That's where the story ends, at the end of chapter uh, 11. So having said all that, uh, Jabesh, Jabesh Gilead is up um, near the top there, just above where it says Ammon. So those are the key places where it was all happening. So the Ammonites were coming in from the, west, from the east, trying to get into Gilead uh, to, give, to, to hustle the Israelites. Under the heading of uh, rejecting the covenant. Let's see what we're talking about here. The Ammonites had a real bone to pick with the Israelites. Uh, way back in the days of the judges, uh, under the judge called Jephthah, uh, the Ammonites had suffered a humiliating defeat at the hands of Israel. There was a great loss on their part, uh, a loss of people and a, a loss of towns and real estate. But like so many other people groups, Right down through history, can, can, can I say it? Right into this very island on which we live, they had long memories. They had long, they had long memories. Uh, and if they could conquer Jabesh Gilead, they would be in a position to make life really, really awkward and difficult for Israel, uh, east of the River Jordan. And they were hoping to reclaim some of their territory. So, in a nutshell. That is the background to the first three verses. That, that is why the Ammonites had decided to attack Gilead. Um, they really didn't like the people of, of Gilead or didn't like the, the Israelites. Uh, Ammon was coming for Jabesh Gilead. They surrounded the city. This is an ancient word. This is about 3,000 years ago. So they surrounded the city. This is what they did in, in those days. Uh, and the options were simple for the Israelites, the people of Jabesh Gilead, they all, surrender or be conquered. Neither option was, was particularly nice in the end of the day, but those were the options. What did the elders... Now here's, the, here's the crunch point here. What did the elders of Jabesh do? They bargained for a treaty. They wanted to make a covenant with Nahash. By the way, the name Nahash actually means serpent. And would you make a treaty with anybody with the name serpent? 
I don't think so, but they, that, that's what they wanted. Make a treaty with us, we read in verse 1. Make a treaty with us and we will be subject to you. Now, the question for us is simply this. What is missing here? What is missing here? Or who is missing here? These are the people of God. But it appears that they, neither, they either didn't know their God or they didn't care about God. Had they forgotten God, the God of Israel? Had they forgotten that he had been their salvation from Egypt? I think it's four times in this chapter uh, that the word rescue or saved is mentioned. The whole thing is about saving Jabesh Gilead, as the whole thing is about saving Israel, rescuing Israel. Had they forgotten that the God of Israel had been their salvation in or from Egypt, and he had defended them in the desert as they moved to the promised land. He took them across the Jordan under, under Joshua, and he had maintained uh, their nationhood from that point on. Had they forgotten all of this? He sent all the judges to keep them on their right lines, no matter how bad they turned out to be. These people in Jabesh Gilead had offered to become the servants of the Ammonites. That's pretty rubbish, pretty rubbish. One writer, one commentator says this, what we see here is the sad effect of sin and careless living. It lowers men's spirits, saps their courage, and discourages noble effort. He's talking, the commentator's talking about those who, who are believers. Oh, he says, it is pitiable to see men tamely submitting to a vile master, and the vile master's name was serpent. Yet how often is the sight repeated? How often do people virtually say to the devil, make a covenant with us and we will serve you. I think uh, we need to, we're not even getting to Saul yet, but I think we need to learn a lesson here from this, both as individuals and as the church of the living Christ. We need to be careful that we do not, even unwittingly, enter into a treaty with the wider society around us. I hope that's not too much of a mouthful. I know it's half seven on a Sunday night. What are we doing this at half seven on a Sunday night for? I don't know. But it's serious. You see, and this will sound critical, but it's not meant to be critical. There's a great desire amongst well, evangelical churches uh, 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 today uh, to be known as the churches in the community. But we need to be, and, and that's good, we need to be known in the community. But here's the problem with this. We are not to be like the community. We are not to be like the society of which we are a part. We are to be different. We are to be Zion, city of God. That's different. To be like the community in any kind of intimate way, shall we say, is to call for a king uh, so that we're like all the other nations. 
That's, that, that's what you've done this already. That's what Israel wants. Why do they want a king? Because they want to be like everybody else. Everybody else around, all the nations around us have a king. We want a king. And if you remember, Samuel was assured that they weren't rejecting Samuel's leadership. They were actually rejecting God, which is not good. So to be really wanting to be like the community in which you live is the equivalent of calling for a king so that we will be like all the other nations. But you see, we have a king. We've been singing. We read about him. We've been singing about him. Uh, they say, we have a king. His name is Jesus. And he has promised to be with us to the very end of the age till we get to that place we were reading about in Revelation chapter 5. He is our great defender in all circumstances. Um, that song we were singing, as uh, Paul Balosh, the, the writer of that song, as morning dawns and evening, uh, evenings fade, your name is a strong and mighty uh, tower. Uh, we've sung that this evening. Do we actually believe that? Do we? When we go out of here tonight and get back into the week, tomorrow morning, will we believe that our Lord's name is a strong and mighty tower, it's a shelter like no other, deserves to be sung about throughout the nations and therefore deserves to be proclaimed throughout the nations. Do we really believe that nothing has the power to save or to rescue but his name? But that's the question that comes to us out of this. There's an interesting demand made by Nahash the servant. serpent. In this treaty, the right eyes of the Israelites were to be gouged. And this is really bloodthirsty. This is the Old Testament. Actually, it's not the Old Testament. It's the world you and I live in. This kind of carry on, as, you know, has been going on all over the place, over in Ukraine and all the rest of it. It's, it has never changed in 3,000 years. Their eyes, their right eyes were to be gouged out by which they would be. Two things come out of that. Number one, and it does state this, that, that Israel's, the Israelites would be humiliated. They would be seen to be weak, pathetic in the eyes of all the other nations. That's one thing. But the other thing is that when a, a soldier's right eye is gouged out, he can't be a soldier because he can't fight. If you're firing your bow, you need your right eye. If you're carrying your shield, it's your left eye you cover, and you need your right eye to see what you're doing with the sword. So in actual fact, they were being made unable to rebel against Ammon. They were being made unable to fight in a battle. And look, this is what happens when the church or individual Christians submit to the society in which we live. They are perceived as weak and ineffective. How is the church perceived in the 21st century? Generally, weak and ineffective. Their eye, well, physical eyes haven't been gouged out. But perhaps there's a case that their eye is taken off the Great Commission to preach the gospel, to proclaim Jesus. And we settle for more comfortable, lesser things. I think if there's a lesson we can take out, it's a warning to all believers in all ages to be really careful, really careful about who they enter into treaties with, either deliberately or unwittingly. Second thing, 
We see in the passage, we're coming into Saul here, uh, we see what, what I've called in the second place a righteous concern, a righteous concern. Uh, seven days grace were asked for in which Jabesh would call for help from the rest of Israel. Now, Nahash must have been pretty certain uh, that they weren't going to get this help or he wouldn't have given them their seven days. But they got it for someone to come to their rescue. So the word went out to all Israel and it soon came to Gibeah. That's where Saul lived. That's where the new king of Israel was looking after his oxen. Uh, and he came back from work on one of these days, the day that the news had arrived in Gibeah. He came back from work. He heard a great upset in the town. What's wrong with everything? Why are they crying like this? Why are they wailing? <coughs> he was given the news about Jabesh. Response result. Saul reacted immediately. But according to the text, according to the text, verse 6 when Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him and he burned with anger. It was time for Saul to act and God was with him. It was very much in the nature of the judges, only now he was going to be king. The Spirit of God came upon Saul. I mean, you need to remember, that's the way the Holy Spirit worked in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit was only poured out at Pentecost into the lives of every believer. Before that, the Holy Spirit worked in other strange ways from the outside in. So the Holy Spirit came upon Saul. But you know what? It, it didn't come to entertain him. It didn't come to give him some kind of a spiritual thrill. Absolutely not. It came as the Holy Spirit does to equip him for service so that he could do something for the Lord. And his first result was anger. Commentators say, not a selfish anger, but a righteous concern for the cause of the Lord among his people. And Saul, just to show how serious he was, and just to show that in fact, yeah, I'm going to be king now. He sent messengers out right across Israel and they carried with him bits of slaughtered oxen. It was a very bloody existence to be a believer uh, in, in the Old Testament. Really messy, really, really messy. Bits of slaughtered oxen. And he delivered a clear threat to the people of Israel. Uh, again, one commentator says, the nature of the threat seemed more to be from the mafia than from the people of God. But what was Saul doing? Saul was saying, look, this is, this is a serious problem. A serious problem for individual Israelites. A serious problem for the covenant people. And therefore, a serious problem for the reputation of the living God. And Paul, Saul wanted it to be clear that failure to step up and defend the cause of God at this time was sin. And a commentator says, it's interesting. Not to be a Christian to be a believer, to be a child of God, to be included in, in the covenant of God and not to do the covenant things, not to do the God things, not to do the Jesus things. It's actually sin because it's rebellion against God's design. And he said, you're going to be punished from this now. You might think it isn't the worst punishment. Basically, he said, your oxen are going to end up like this, but 
you know, to an agricultural people with these big cow things that were probably very expensive and to get them chopped up like that uh, was going to certainly break their bank account. But we need to take this seriously. I wonder, do we have a righteous concern, a righteous concern for the lost or for the state of the church? It was made clear, made clear to these people that there was now a leader in Israel who meant business. And they became aware that God's king was now on the throne. Interestingly, the effect was one of terror. And as one body, they followed Saul. And Jabesh was saved. Saul had won his first victory as king. He was now established. Isn't it so sad? We, we, we don't go this way because others are going to be doing this as the chapters move on. But is, this, this is why I call what I'm saying tonight Saul's big moment. This was his big moment. He didn't have any more. He actually went downhill after that. <coughs> but isn't that so sad? The question is, what king do we follow? Is it the one upon whom rested the Spirit of God, whose name is Jesus, about whom we have been singing this evening, who met the great enemy of believers head on on the cross and won the victory over him? And in following this king, do we have a righteous concern for the cause of God, which is the cause of Jesus, which is the cause of the gospel? Something came into my head uh, this afternoon when I was looking at this. Uh, last Sunday, uh, Janet and I were at Beaver Park uh, Presbyterian Church. It is the, that's our home church. That's where we came from. Uh, and it was their 60th anniversary. So I was taking uh, the morning service and we went back uh, <clears throat> uh, for the evening service, probably all because it was a Bunbury after it. Uh, and uh, we, we didn't want to miss that and, and meet people we actually haven't seen for years. But it's one of those one of those things that happen and you start talking to people and you start thinking about all the things that happened more years ago than I care to remember. But you know, I began to wonder when I came to this and this came into my head, have, have I lost the righteous concern for the lost? In that church, we learned, Jen and I learned how to do everything from a Christian point of view, how to pray, how to lead, how to talk, how to go out and do open-air meetings. Uh, we used to run coffee bars. And we wonder, I wonder, I have wondered, whatever happened? You guys, a lot of you guys are far too young. Do you know what I'm talking about? But we had the most amazing coffee bars. We, we, did, we were trained by an organization called the Evangelical Youth Movement. Um, and we had guys in off the streets and we had in those days, there were loads of uh, Christian groups, uh, and it was amazing. And we were uh, righteously concerned about, about the lost. Where, and I was wondering, where's it all gone? Where has it all gone? We seem to have become, as a church, as churches, not all churches, but many churches, a bit insipid. And the righteous concern seems to be very absent. Drive down our city roads on any Sunday morning and you still see hundreds of people. I haven't sat and counted them, but I, you know, hundreds of people heading to church. Now that is beyond good. But I often ask myself if we all 
really have a Holy Spirit-fired righteous concern for the spread of the gospel. And if we all have, <clears throat> where is the result on the ground? We may well flow in through the church doors on a Sunday, but do we have a treaty with the world, with the Ammonites, Monday through Saturday? I don't know. I'm just putting it out there, putting it out there. King Saul, the new King Saul, he uh, overcame the enemy. And so has King Jesus, infinitely better than King Saul. He never failed and does not fail. Thirdly and finally, the, the last little passage from 12 uh, down through to 15. Uh, heading, renewal of kingship. Or uh, in some, it's equally well translated, renewal of the kingdom. Um, let me see, I'm just looking for the verse. Then Samuel said to the people, uh, come, let us go to... They, they, were, they, were, they were ecstatic. They wanted to kill the people. At the end of chapter 10, there were people who uh, despised Saul. They didn't want him to be king. <clears throat> and these guys down in verse 12 in chapter 11, what they wanted to do is, because it's the age in which it was, they wanted to get their hands on these guys and chop their heads off because they were so naughty at the very outset. Paul said, or Saul said, no, we're not going to do that. At this moment, he was a king of peace, a peace and forgiveness. But Samuel then said to the people down there in verse 14 or 15, 14 it is, 14, he said to him, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingship or the kingdom. And what was that all about? How could they renew a kingdom which actually wasn't there yet? How could they renew kingship when the king has only just, only just been crowned king? and won his first victory. I, how could they do that when things haven't got off the ground yet? <clears throat> so far as the people are concerned, this rescue of Jabesh is a proof positive that Saul is the kind of king they want. <clears throat> he is their man. Saul has given all the glory for the victory to God. So Samuel strikes while the iron is hot. He reckons this will not last. And he summons the people to Gilgal to renew the kingship. And Saul there is made king. Sacrifices are made before the Lord. And Saul and all the Israelites held a great celebration. Big coronation party. Now here's the important thing here. To see, you know, what does this mean? Why, how are we to interpret this? This was going to take place at Gilgal. Uh, the city which is located just uh, across the Jordan. West of the Jordan <coughs> River. It's the place, if you recall, where the Israelites first crossed the Jordan and entered into the Promised Land. It's the place where the memorial of 12 stones was built. It's the place where what would have been the second generation Israelites were circumcised and where Israel renewed her covenant with God. You find that in uh, Judges. Gilgal is the place from which the angel of the Lord came to remind the Israelites of their deliverance at the Exodus, their covenant with God, and the reason for their struggle with the nations surrounding them. And I think, and it's only me thinking, but I know that others think this as well, 
that Samuel is not speaking about renewing the new kingdom, which had just been inaugurated with the installation of Saul as king. But rather he is talking about renewing God's kingship in Israel, renewing God's kingdom authority in Israel, with God as king, as first established. God was always the king. That's why he could say to Samuel, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. Gilgal is a city closely related to God's covenant with Israel. This is a renewal of commitment to the living God. Jesus is our king. The Father has anointed him and set him on his holy hill, as we would say. And we have gladly, if we're believers here this evening, we have gladly given assent to the appointment and we have made him king in our lives. But sometimes our sense of loyalty and devotion wavers, wanes. Insensibly, we often fail to live as his subjects. We lack devotion. Therefore, we do need from time to time to renew the kingdom authority, to renew kingship, to reverently make him king, as it were, before the Lord. There is a sense in which we can consecrate ourselves only once, but we can renew our vows often. In many ways, that's what we're doing at the Lord's Supper. When Janet and I were in Beaver, uh, our, our uh, mentor in terms of an organization uh, uh, was uh, in the first place the Junior Boys Brigade and in the second place the Christian Endeavor, uh, which you younger people maybe don't know anything about, but you should do. Uh, we learned everything there about being a Christian. And there was a covenant, there was a CE covenant, which I would repeat to you now if I could remember, but it's too long ago. But actually, once a month in one of the meetings, this covenant was brought out and everyone recited it together. Sounds very liturgical, but it was a reaffirmation of our faith in following Jesus and to one another as children of God. And that's what was going on in those last few verses after Saul was confirmed as king. And perhaps that is something that we Need to th I'm not talking about ritual or lit liturgy. I'm just talking it's something we need to give some serious consideration to. Renewing our vows before the Lord. I'm not talking about church. I'm, you know, nothing like that. I'm just talking about doing it. Just about doing it. Uh, on an ongoing basis. Uh, reciting, as it were, to him. Our faithfulness, our loyalty, our love for him. And our desire to have a righteous concern for his lost world. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for words of Scripture which have come to us over thousands of years, which you have uh, preserved for us for, for our enlightenment and our encouragement, uh, Lord, and our instruction. <coughs> we pray, Lord, that we will be instructed. We pray, Lord, that the, your, your Holy Spirit would take these words from this scripture, 1 Samuel 11, 
and write them upon our hearts. Make us able to understand them and make us able to apply them to our individual lives and then corporately all of us to apply them to the life of our church. And we pray, O Lord, that we will be known as a people with a gracious, righteous concern for the world around us. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.